Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your promises. We thank you that you are faithful generation after generation, that uh, you don't just reveal yourself to us, but to our children and to their children after them. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Pray that you would watch over us, that you would guide our talk today, that you would um, bless our meditations, and that we would think your thoughts after you. That wherever we believe wrong things, you'd correct us, and that uh, the true belief would flow into our hearts and our lives. Thank you for all you've done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Well, today is the last Sunday school uh, that we are doing for the school year, um, which means that we're done for next week. There's no Sunday school next week, and not again until September. Uh, And in September, we'll talk about different things than covenant theology, probably. Um, Or maybe we'll go back to the Mosaic Covenant. I don't know. But we've talked about a lot of things, right? We've discussed a lot of topics the last six months. Covenant theology is a big topic, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it, was because there's so much to learn, there's so much to talk about, um, and it is very important. Right? The Bible uh, is structured through covenants. Um, the dispensationalists disagree. They say the Bible is structured through dispensations, which means God operates different ways in different ages of history. We say that, no, the Lord operates the same way, but he administers his grace towards us a little bit differently in different ages through different covenants. So the covenants are essentially unified. Right? There's not, there's not this complete disunity between the covenants, but there are distinctions. And so we talked about how at the beginning, when God said in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will, uh, will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent shall bruise his heel, that's a promise, right? That's a covenant that God is making. But there's a lot left to, to uncover. We're not really sure what that means. What kind of person is the seed going to be? Who's he going to be? When's he going to come? Where's he going to come from? What's it mean that he's going to crush the head of the serpent? What's it mean his, his heel's going to be bruised? These are all questions that we're asking ourselves. And as God progressively reveals his plan, he does so through covenants. And so every covenant that he's created throughout history has revealed a little bit more about his plan, a little bit more about what he's doing, a little bit more about Jesus. So ultimately, all the covenants point to Jesus. That's what I hope you take away from everything we've talked about in the six months. You forget everything, fine. You forget all the stuff we talked about the Mosaic Covenant. You forget all the weird jokes I made. Please forget those. Um, You come away, I hope, thinking the covenant theology is about Jesus. That the covenants point to him. That everything God does is to teach us about himself and to show us the grace that he has given us through the cross. So everything revolves around the cross. It revolves around Jesus. So we've talked about how the the covenants beginning with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David all flow towards the cross. And when the new covenant comes, uh, when Jesus institutes the new covenant, it's not that he's doing something radically different. This is the same stuff he's been doing since the beginning. He's He's not suddenly changed the game. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. It's just now we we see more clearly the object of our faith. Jesus Christ died and resurrected. Um, So when we come to the new covenant, we're done. We're We're not looking for another covenant after this. There's not more to talk about. We're talking about now when we talk about the new covenant. We're talking about our lives, our experiences right now. And so, unfortunately, I, I could probably spend a lot more weeks talking about the new covenant. We could discuss a lot more things, but 
we just don't have the time. Um, what that means is that we, I focused on a couple, of, a couple of practical questions, right, for what the new covenant means for us. And the first question we talked about last week, does anyone remember what we talked about last week? No? John's like, no, I'm, you weren't there. Yeah, okay. So there's the covenant, the new covenant applies to people who are in the church, but who may or may not be believers. So how can you be a member of a church and even a member of the covenant and not be a believer? How does that work? Charlie? Covenants are actually administrations that you can't be in, whether the heart is truly um, in Christ by faith or not. So that's why we make the distinction between the indivisible and the visible. The invisible are the elect throughout all ages. The visible would be the mixed public or social visible church, which is both wheat and tares. Yeah. As a scripture mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, we can. The, the covenants are administrations, meaning that they are made. To, they create a community, a covenant community. Think of Israel. When God brings Israel out of Egypt, it's not just Israelites that go with them. It's a mixed multitude. There's a bunch of Egyptians and a bunch of others. We don't, we're not really sure who exactly these people are, but they're they're brought into uh, this exodus, um, and then the Lord says. But wait, here's, here's the conditions to get into the covenant. Be circumcised. But if these mixed multitudes, if they circumcise themselves and their households, they are brought into the covenant with the Israelites. So no matter who you are, right? You don't have to be an Israelite to be a part of the covenant even in the Old Testament. You have to be circumcised. And that means that you are brought into the covenant. So you can be in the covenant, right, through circumcision, the sign of inclusion in the covenant, and yet not be elect. Paul says in Romans, right, that not all Israel was true Israel. Or he says in another place, um, external circumcision doesn't count for anything. It's the circumcision of the heart that actually really matters for salvation. Um, and that means that you need to be regenerated. It's not enough to have the external you know, checkbox, like I've, I've been circumcised, I'm in the covenant, I'm good. No. You have to be regenerated, you have to believe, you have to have faith. There's no other way to salvation. So that means that our experience, our practical lived experience in the new covenant today is that we live uh, in an age where there are believers and unbelievers in the church. And Lord willing, that it's mostly believers, right? Lord willing, that means it's an overwhelming majority of, of believers. And it's the elders' job to do their best, right, to get that number to be as, as much as possible, to purge those who are not believers from our midst. Um, and that's why church discipline is important. That's why it's important that we exhort one another, why we pour into one another, why we're calling out sin in each other and encouraging one another, um, because we're a body. We belong to each other. So I've been trying to push to be clear that you can be really and truly a member of the covenant of grace and yet not be saved. Um, 
And so for us, we now turn to a different question. Well, what about my kids? What does that mean for my children? Because circumcision, given to infants, right? They were given the sign of covenant inclusion. Um, we're, we baptize our infants, right? We baptize our children. The baptism is, is a sign of covenant inclusion. Um, so my goal today is not to, not to give this thorough defense of infant baptism. We'll touch on it. But we're just going to assume that baptism is the sign of, of covenant inclusion. Um, and that now we need to ask the question, so are our children members of the covenant? And if they are, then that means they should be baptized. That's the logic. Um, so let's ask the question. Are your children members of the covenant of grace? Yes. Okay, point to some scriptures. What, what scriptures can we think of that say Yes. Anyone think of anything? I think in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that our children are holy. Yeah, yeah, it's a great passage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Set apart. Okay, set apart. What does it mean to be set apart? taken out of the world they're no longer they're no longer members I guess you'd say of the world in the term of just general population but their home is actually heaven they're set apart yeah yeah they're set apart they're brought out of the world uh, it means they belong to God um, that the Lord has claimed them so when Moses goes to the burning bush, the Lord says, take your sandals off because this is holy ground. What the Lord is saying is that I have claimed this territory, that this belongs to me, and you don't get to come into it without my permission. And when you do come into it with my permission, you have to do so in the way that I tell you to. It's like a, a, a throne room. Right? You don't just barge into a king's throne room unannounced and uninvited and with looking however you want to look. It's like Esther, right? When Esther said, or Esther wanted to go to the, the king, and or uh, Mordecai wanted Esther to go to the king, she said, I can't just barge in. Right? I have to be invited. Otherwise, he'll kill me. Right? That's the law. There's a principle there that the Lord also operates by, that you, you don't just barge into God's presence. His presence is holy. You have to be invited, and you have to come how he says you have to come. It's holy. Uh, so we apply that to our children. That our children belong to him. They're claimed by him. And so we don't get to say things about our kids that God doesn't say. Any other passages that you could think of? Any passage. Go ahead, Charlie. I think that because we we do so the distinction already between us and say like our dispensational brothers that we, we make the continuity argument. So from the Old Testament, we can look at things like ceremonial washing before coming into uh, worship, those sorts of things. And likewise, remember God uh, in, in, in Tibalah, general fashion, made himself a people. It involved water. So whether that's the creation or whether that's...
sea. Water has always been the initiation into this new covenantal people. Mm -hmm. so yeah. That seems to be his like business as usual. Sure. Yeah, yeah, when we find baptism, it actually shows up pretty out of the blue, relatively. John the Baptist is just suddenly baptizing people with water. Um, but the principle has always been there. The Lord has always used water as a way to create his people, like Israel coming out of Egypt. Um, John, you want to add? Um, when Jesus rebuked his disciples for turning the children away, yeah. he takes them up into his arms and says, such is the yeah, that's a great passage. Uh, Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him, Jesus, that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Right? They were like, he's got better things to do than to deal with kids. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Right? The disciples were like... The disciples were kind of like Baptists. They were like, no, don't bring the kids to Jesus. Um, don't bother him. They, they're not yet there. They're not adults, right? Jesus deals with adults. Um, and Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Because to them belongs the, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, hope I didn't offend any Baptists in the room. <laughs> uh, the point being that they belong to Jesus. They're not to be excluded from him. And even to be, they're not to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah, that's a great passage. Any other passages? Matthew? God talks in Malachi about bringing uh, men and women together in covenant for the purpose of raising up children. Yeah, that's a great passage, right? Men and women brought together for raising up godly offspring. Joe? Acts 2 says that the promise is for us and our children. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a very a classic uh, passage. Peter's uh, preaching and preaching the gospel. And then they heard this. They were cut to the heart. This is Acts 2, 37. Um, and they said, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So yeah, the promise, the covenant is for you and your children. Charlie? We just wrapped up Malachi, which is chapter 2. God is rebuking men for like withholding from their wives, God's children. Mm -hmm. does. Yeah, the Lord cares about our kids and he cares about all kids, but especially ours. He's given them the promise, right? The covenant that for the believers, it is not just for them, for those who've confessed, but the the covenant is for believers and their children. So our confession mirrors this, right? Our confession says that the visible church, the covenant community is believers and their children. Which means that our kids are truly members of the covenant of grace. So in what ways do we communicate to others and to our kids that they're included in the church? How do we do that practically, visibly? In what ways do we show to them and to others that our kids are members of the, of the covenant, members of the church? John? 
we allow them into the sanctuary and worship. Yeah. And teach them. Yeah, they're brought to worship. We don't say, okay, we're going to get a babysitter so we can go to church on Sunday. We bring our kids to church. How else? Was that? Baptism. Baptism. Yeah, we put the sign of covenant inclusion, or the Lord puts his sign of covenant inclusion upon our children. Um, Think back to to the Abrahamic covenant, right? In Genesis 17, when the Lord is establishing his covenant with Abraham and saying that I'm going to make of you a great nation, right? You're going to have many offspring. There's going to be a ton of kids. Um, It's going to be great. You're going to pull your hair out. You're not going to sleep. And this sign was given to show that your children are members of the covenant. And it was a sign of circumcision, right? That this was to show that you were in the covenant. You were part of the covenant community um, to the very extent that if you rejected circumcision, either for yourself or for your children, that you were, in essence, rejecting the covenant and you were to be excommunicated because you had rejected God's covenant. They said, I don't want to be in the covenant by refusing the sign of covenant inclusion. So we actually talked about this in Exodus 4, um, back when I preached that, because in Exodus 4, the Lord comes to kill Moses in the middle of the night. Right? He says, hey Moses, go, go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, fine, whatever, and goes in to talk to Pharaoh. And God is like, psych, I'm going to kill you. Um, and it's this very weird story where Moses is now like being attacked by God, and yet somehow his wife, Zipporah, knows that she needs to circumcise his son, Gershom. So she circumcises Gershom with a rock, and then like throws the blood on Moses, and Moses is spared. Uh, the point being, I think, that Moses had not circumcised his son. He had refused. And Zipporah, being the daughter of a priest understood implicitly that this is what needed to be fixed. That the circumcision was what needed to be fixed. And in essence, she was showing that it's only by the death of your son will you be saved. It's only by the death of the child will you have life. Because circumcision is also a picture of sacrifice. You sacrifice, in a sense, through circumcision, your children to the Lord. Say, they belong to God, not to me. So when you bring your kids for baptism, you're saying a very similar thing. You're saying, my kids don't belong to me. They belong to the Lord. It's an act of faith on the parents' part right, to come and baptize their child. Charlie, you had your hand up. Are we, we, is it also that we are holding forth for the children, which is why we, as they get older, call them to think back on it. We're holding forth Christ's death to them. It, like it's, it's the Lord's sign first before it's, yeah. before it's ours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is, it is the Lord putting his sign, right, his, his stamp upon our children and saying, they belong to me. And we remind them of that right, as they grow to look back to the baptism to say, you've always belonged to God, right? Now live like it. So we'll get into that a little bit more when we actually talk about what that means practically for raising your kids. So we baptize them, right? It's the, the sign of inclusion into the covenant. Um, does this mean that your children are automatically saved? No. Why not? Why is that important? You declared that before publicly. 
Okay. Baptism can be a sign of either that profession, future forward, and or condemnation, just like the flood, Noah's family, mm -hmm. versus those that perish. Yeah. Yeah, there still needs to be... I would say even before profession of faith, I mean, profession of faith is important, but profession of faith is acknowledging something that's already true. Our kids need to have faith themselves. Um, they're not saved because they're part of the covenant. They're not saved because of your faith. Like how Paul says, circumcision on the outward doesn't matter. It's the circumcision of the heart that matters. Baptism on the outward without the inward regeneration, outward baptism doesn't do anything. But by the grace of God, when he gives faith to the child, it is, it is regeneration. It is this child coming to faith to believe in Jesus Christ on their own. Um, but that does mean that just because our kids are in the church doesn't mean that they're going to follow Jesus. That means that they could walk away. And the reality that, as parents, we have to struggle with is that this is a matter of election. We can't force our kids to believe. We can call on them to believe. We can command them. We can say, believe in Jesus Christ. We can teach them what it means to love Jesus. We can teach them everything and show them and model them and call them, but we can't force them. They can't, you know, peel open their heart and shove faith in. Only the Lord can do that. Uh, Charlie. Is there a, because I think of the confession and how it states that outside of the visible church there's no hope or recourse of salvation. I think there's similar. No ordinary means of salvation outside of the visible church. Salvation outside the visible church. So is there, is there, I just, I think of how the sort of the, the range of the word salvation or rescue or whatnot in the scriptures. How can we, how can we separate because obviously the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know if our children are elect. But because they have been brought in by baptism into the visible church, which is the only ordinary means of salvation, um, is there a way that we can tell them, like, you are rescued or you are... What's, what's, a, what's a comfortable term? You know, like Noah's sons were saved on the ark, even though some of them would go off and abandon. There was a... There was a temporal rescue or, or salvation in that sense. Does it make sense kind of what I'm asking? Yeah, I think so. I think you're asking, you know, what what can we say to our kids for sure? Right. And what would we be maybe, you know, stretching or stepping over the bounds to say? Like yeah, this is a practical question of like we don't I don't think we'd want to sow doubt, like, I don't know if you're in or not, but we would say you're actually in the visible covenant of grace, which is the only means of salvation. Like I guess that's what I'm asking. I, yeah, that's a great question. I've thought a little bit about this. Um, so I, I, this is probably not the entirety of the, of the answer, and there's, it's probably a good question to keep thinking about. But I think of the things that the Lord says to Israel, right? Especially when he makes the covenant. He says, uh, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I think we could say that to our kids. The Lord is your God, and you are his people. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. Um, I, I think you could say Jesus loves you. Right? Jesus died for you. 
Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Um, and you could say those things. I would, I would then say that the line starts to get blurry when you're starting to say, um, you're, you're going to heaven for sure. It's not that I'm like, okay, is this wrong to say? Is this unscriptural? But it starts to get at that, like, that line between calling them to believe and not assuming faith, not assuming regeneration, um, but still acknowledging the truth, the reality that they are, they are in the covenant and they belong to the Lord and the Lord loves them and the Lord cares about them and that he's made promises to them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully that helps. I think it's still worth thinking about more and fleshing out. Yeah, Steve? I feel like to, to make them see that, that, you know, that they are separate from the world. That there's, there's the world and there's God's people. That they are among God's people. So they should live very differently than the world. That there's mm-hmm. that distinction put on them. That they are a different people. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, whether, whether they embrace that as they get older, kind of will tell. But they are set apart. From, from the way everyone else lives. Yeah. John? I think it's helpful, too, with the young adults, not, not the tiny children, but the, the younger adult children, to be able to say, if, if you believe. Um, uh, Paul's really cautious about saying, if you believe, if, if you accept, if you trust. And I, I think once in a while, we just kind of assume that, from our kids as they're growing up, that they do trust, that they do accept, and then you can, that brings a question in their mind, do I believe, how do I believe, that uh, helps them, I think, to form that basis where they can come to you and say, it's not your faith, dad and mom, it's my faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're, yeah, it's a fair point, right, as our kids get older, we want to reinforce that it's it's not enough to parrot back the same things, right? You may know all the right things, and that's great, and you need to, and you need to live a different kind of life. You, you must, because um, you belong to the Lord. But we also want to push that it's it's it has to be your faith, that you need to believe, you need to seize the promises, you need to respond in faith to what the Lord has said about you. Um, any other thoughts or questions on that? So going back to um, the fact that parents can't guarantee, our, we can't guarantee our kids' salvation, meaning their eternal life, right? We can't, we can't force them to be elect. Um, so what reactions might a parent have to this reality? All, all kinds of reactions, right? But what kinds of reactions might a parent have to this reality that they can't they can't force their kid to believe, can't force election? Matthew? Um, I'm not sure if this is answering the question that you have, but it, I think it points us to our responsibility. We can't we can't force them to believe, but we can do what Scripture has commanded us to do with our children, teach them the of God, model those ways to them, call them to repent and believe, uh, and do that their entire you know, as long as we have them in our household um, and make sure that essentially if they grow up and don't believe, it's not because we fail to teach them, it's not because we fail to love them, uh, it's not because we fail to discipline them in the way that we should. Yeah. 
uh, one reaction for sure is responding saying, okay, I can't force it. So it's not, I'm not going to put the burden on myself to force salvation, but I'm going to respond to the Lord's commands, which are clear in Scripture. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a sec. Charlie. I, yeah, Matthew hits the goal. That's like where we hope we all are all at. I think the, the extremes then would probably be either panic or neglect, panic giving way to control, mm-hmm. right, or rest this thing from the Lord. And then neglect would be kind of the, the most extreme version of like, it doesn't really matter what I do or what we do. They're going to be saved. It's like, you know, kind of that sort of. Yeah. Yeah, something like a, a neglect or, or maybe a fatalism. Yeah. Right? I, well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm not really going to try. Um, and if, it just kind of is like, well, they can do whatever they want. Um, I'm just going to hope that they come to Christ. Like, as we're raising our kids, there are expectations and responsibilities we have as parents to not neglect them, to not just be like, well, whatever. You know, I can't guarantee the salvation, so who cares? Um, so it's a, it's a tension that we hold. Right? Is we are called to be responsible and to take um, to be faithful, but to never believe that that's that is what's going to lead to their salvation. That's not what's going to guarantee their salvation. Um, so that's one one option. Another, we might respond by treating them like outsiders. Right, we might say, well, because uh, I can't guarantee their election, because faith is required, I'm just going to treat them like they're on the outside until they show me that they, they're, they have faith. Um, the problem is, it's not what God does. That's not how the Lord talks about our kids. He doesn't treat them like outsiders. He says, don't hinder them. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Um, the promise is for you and your children. The, they are brought in. So we don't treat them like they don't belong. We treat them like they belong. We treat them like this is their church. They are God's people. He is their God. That includes expectations for how they live. uh, But that also includes promises um, that the Lord has made to them. So ultimately, I think it comes down to how how we should respond, right, is first prayer. Number one thing is we pray for our kids. We can't make them... Right, So we pray, and we trust the Lord, uh, because we're acknowledging in prayer that we are helpless, that we're dependent upon God, uh, and we trust God. And we don't respond with panic. We don't respond like, oh, no. We respond with, tr- with faith and believe God and trust Him and, and be patient in His timing. Um, and we respond with, with obeying what the Lord says. So a couple of verses... Um, Deuteronomy 6, 6-7. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Right? Teach your children diligently. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? We discipline our children, which means we, we guide them on the correct path. We teach them what it means to walk a godly life, to live a godly life. Um, we discipline in the, them in that. Um, and we pray for our kids. When you all came to have your children baptized, you vowed some things. And the OPC vows that every parent makes when they bring the child forward for baptism are this. Do you promise to instruct your child 
So teach them. And the principles of our holy religion as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and as summarized in the Confession of Prayer uh, and Catechism of the Church. And you promise to pray with and for your child to set an example of piety and godliness before him and to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So teach, uh, pray for, model, and nurture. You could also say discipline, right? To, to guide them, to show them the correct path. Um, that's our responsibilities as parents to our kids. Because all of that means we're treating them like they belong here. We're not treating them like they're, like they're outsiders. But neither are we assuming that just because they're in, that means they're saved, and we can just dust our hands off and be like, whatever. Leave them to their own devices. Obviously, we trust the Lord. But... We also call them. We call our kids. Here's how you should live. Here's what it looks like. Um, and so we raise them as though they were belonging to Christ's church, because they do. So that's, that's what I really wanted to push today, was our kids belong to Jesus. Um, and this, this doctrine gives us as parents um, a, a, a pretty amazing hope, a pretty radical, mysterious hope. Um, one that I, I hold close, that children who die before birth or in infancy, they're members of the covenant. God has made promises to them. And I, I, have, a, I have a brother or sister somewhere out there um, who belongs to the Lord. I've never met them. Died before I was born uh, in a miscarriage. And kind of set my parents off, and then they were like, then I showed up, kind of ruined their day. <laughs> and then they were like, actually, this is good. Um, but that's our hope. God has made promises to your kids. And that applies to those who die in infancy or childbirth or before being born. And that's a mysterious, radical hope we have in Christ. Are there any questions about covenants at all? <laughs> We've talked about a lot of things these last six months. Uh, a lot of amazing, beautiful things. A lot of stuff that I feel like I, I didn't teach very well or stumbled over. A lot of stuff we didn't cover. Um, I appreciate your, your patience and your faithfulness. We don't have to stop talking, you and me about these things um, just because we're done with Sunday school I'm available um, there's obviously things that I haven't covered or touched on um, or if you just want to keep interacting I'm here for that John yeah one question it's kind of going back to your uh, preaching on Exodus 4 um, do you think that that incident with Moses and Zipporah um, was a prelude to God calling Israel his firstborn and making that distinction between Pharaoh's firstborn and his firstborn? It's literally the previous passage. Right before God seeks to kill Moses, he says that. That Israel is my firstborn son, and if Pharaoh doesn't give up his firstborn, I'm going to, if Pharaoh doesn't give up my firstborn, I'm going to take his firstborn. And then Moses hears this, right? And then he's looking at his firstborn son, who's not circumcised, right? And in essence, he is not given to God what belongs to God. And God says, if you don't give what belongs to me, I'm going to take it. It's going to be costly for you if you don't give me what belongs to me. So there's, yeah, that's all tied together.
Charlie? Is, does Pharaoh respond to you by saying, you can take all the men out with you, but the, but the children, I guess, like I'm not going to let the, the, the children go with you, I think, at one point. And that's when Moses has to say, no, Yahweh wants everybody to go out. So Pharaoh wants to keep the kids. That's interesting. I don't remember exactly. Um, we can size our with that. Yeah. But I just think that if it is there, I think it is. It just shows that the antithetical princes of the world want Yahweh's children. They want to hold them back. Pharaoh does throw the firstborn into the Nile. He does know that to keep this nation on its knees, I need to get rid of the men. Yeah. So Yahweh says, no, I'm taking all of my people and my children into the wilderness so that they can eat a peace. That's a good question, and yeah, we'll follow up because I can't find it. Um, I remember something about that. Yes. Going back to the wayward child, we as believing parents can never stop praying for them, even if they get into mature years. Um, we never know at what point in time the Lord would bring them to himself. And I think of a thief on the cross. He's dying, and he's in heaven. And we don't know. So we keep praying no matter how old they are. Yeah, keep praying, keep pursuing. He's still praying for me. <laughs> We're all praying for you, Paul. <laughs> Amen. Anything else? All the covenant children back there are like, oh. Cool. Thank you all. Um, let's pray and get ready to go before the Lord in worship. God, you are mysterious, uh, and you are better than, better than we even realize. You have made promises that you are faithful to us and to our children. You have extended the covenant not just to us who believe, uh, even though that would be enough, but you have brought in our children as well. You have shown great love and care for the little ones, for the least. You have said, to the least belongs the kingdom of heaven. Father, may you teach us to, to love and care for and instruct and discipline our children. And Lord, we pray for our kids, that they would accept what you are doing in their lives, that they would hear, that they would, that this would fill them, that they would grow in wisdom and godliness. And we pray, Lord, for all of our kids, that they would never know a day when they don't know you, if it be your will. And Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would help us as parents to continue to be faithful, to trust you, to depend upon you, to repent of our sins and the ways that we have lapsed or failed or instructed wrongly, uh, led our children astray, that you forgive us, Lord, and that you would continue to work in our families and in our church, that you would grow us all and unite us closer, um, especially as we come to worship you this morning. May, as we enter your sanctuary, Lord, may we be united in one voice, uh, one mind, one heart in Christ Jesus. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.